0: Think about the last time you went to a concert. It probably seems like a lifetime ago. I'm Matt Pikin, the arts producer with Blue Ridge Public Radio, and this is BPR News Presents Curtain Call, the future of local live performance. The coronavirus pandemic has derailed and decimated the entire concert industry, locally and nationally. Over the next hour, we'll check in with local professionals working in contemporary and classical music, along with managers of the venues that stage them. They'll talk about how they're thinking, strategizing, and meeting challenges about performing in a socially distanced reality. The program is edited from an October 21st Facebook Live event. You can find that entire conversation in the video section of the BPR Facebook page. Let's start by talking with Sparrow Pants and Keith Smith, the couple at the heart of the old time Americana band, The Resonant Rogues. I asked them how their creative lives have changed and how they've adapted as artists during the pandemic.
1: I think we've really adapted by doing some of the things that we never had time for before. You know, we were really, really, really busy musicians playing six, seven nights a week. And so a lot of output in our musical life, a lot of performance, a lot of, you know, recording albums, all of this. And so this year has been uh, almost like a sabbatical of sorts where we're taking the time to do a lot of input and learning, studying, writing and we converted a short school bus into a touring vehicle, so preparing for the future, but doing some of the things that we didn't have time, wouldn't have time to do normally. Talk about that a um, little bit. You converted the vehicle into a, a, a touring vehicle. I know there are
0: musicians and bands who perform out of, outside their vehicles. They equip
1: them to perform so live. Is
0: that what you're doing?
1: Not yet, but we're hoping that's kind of a goal to be able to do that. And I think... As we all know, with with this pandemic, everything has kind of shifted to thinking about how to do things in a safer way. And we know that the outdoors and masks are some of the, the ways to make things safer. So I think that it is one of our goals to be able to do shows outside of our bus and to be able to travel in the bus in a more autonomous way. So when we're touring normally, There's a lot of, you know, going in other people's houses or going into hotels or whatever, you know, things uh, going into common spaces and public spaces. So being able to travel on the bus, we're able to have our own kitchen, have our own bed. It doesn't look like there's
0: any end soon to the pandemic. Do you think you're going to have to shift in this way, the way you do things in terms of live performance, if you're going to generate income from your shows?
2: Absolutely, I'd say so. I mean, if you look at the
0: finances of touring musicians and how much goes into lodging and other costs associated, you know, going out to eat, things like that. If we can do all of that in
2: our tour bus, we can save a lot of money on the road, especially now when there's
3: not as much going around.
0: I saw you both perform with your band or at least uh, some musicians from your band. And I, th- I don't know if it was the full resident rogues at the Funkatorium. Have you been able to get shows like that where audiences are masked, they're outdoors? Are those shows starting to be more plentiful than before? I feel like it started to happen kind of mid-summer into late summer where there was people were finally
2: figuring out what was safe and what they could do. Mm -hmm. and and i think we have had that but now we're going into a cold season so we're kind of having to rethink that too
1: yeah and there have been some of those and we're really excited for those types of safer shows to happen and definitely want to support the venues um absolutely and one gig every few weeks is not the same as being able to perform six days a week. You know, so it's uh, it's definitely been a big difference there, just as far as the sheer quantity. Can you talk about that? Just give the audience a sense of scale about how
0: often you were performing shows during normal times in the, in the summer and fall versus what happened with you this year. In a typical year, we're, you know, playing around 200 gigs a year, so...
1: We tour uh, with the Resonant Rogues, and then we also lead two other bands in town. We have a, a swing band, a jazz band called Sparrow or Wingmen, and then we have a Balkan brass band called Black Sea Beat Society. So between those three different projects, we were playing in town like five to six days a week before, you know, and then we were on tour for about between a third and a half of the year. And when we we're on tour, we're also playing five to six days a week. So, I mean, we... We're playing all the time. We work extremely hard since the spring. I think it's only, you know, live in front of people outside. There's only been a handful. We're not so much doing a lot of live streams. Um, We kind of find that medium a little challenging in a lot of ways, but um, but we've been working a lot on getting, building our YouTube channel and have received a lot of encouragement from some friends about that. And, yeah, just practicing, thinking. practicing, <laughs> practicing, Now's practicing. the time where
4: we can practice
1: more than <laughs> we
0: could before. You mentioned between the tour bus, the videos you've been doing and practicing. How do you think you're setting yourselves up now to sustain yourselves as performers moving forward through a pandemic that shows no uh, relenting? How How is the work you're doing now paving the way to be able to continue performing down the road?
1: Well, I think that people are always going to need... Music. People are always going to really crave that art form and really need music in their lives. So even if we're mostly doing small scale performances outside for people with masks on for the pleasant part of the year, we're still going to do it. We next caught up with Ashley Heath,
0: who squeezed us in just before shooting a live video with I Am AVL. Now, Ashley is a native of Marshall, who regularly finishes at or near the top of voting in the annual Best of WNC Awards from the newspaper Mountain Express. But on this night, she didn't find much to celebrate.
2: I've played a couple of live shows, just a handful, but mostly just live streaming on Facebook in my kitchen. I've been doing that a bunch. And I did that a lot through uh, the first phase, and then I did these singing gram things for a while. You could basically like call and dedicate a song to someone you love, You'd call them on the phone or video them, and people were really into that for a while.
5: So yeah, it, yeah. Seemed,
0: it seemed like you know live streaming was hot for a while. You had yeah. these the sort of music telegrams. You doing a little bit. I know you have a full band. You have your heathens when you're able to do festivals and larger shows. Yeah. Um, so how have you been having to rethink what performance means to you as both an artist and financially? You were making your full-time living as a performer Ooh. before then. What? How have you had to rethink what that means in this pandemic?
2: Well, that's a very good question. And I don't have an answer to that yet. Because honestly, I think I might have been in denial until like a month ago. How so? Because, you know, like at first I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I mean, I could do this for like a month or two. I finally sat down and did some envisioning and like, okay, now it's time to make a new game plan. So I think, you know, the studio here, I talked to Jess Thomason and she said that, you know, it's been slammed. Artists are just, what else can we do? We got to record right now. You know, you said you're
0: still strategizing. You don't know what you're going to do. How long can you sustain yourself? You believe as an artist in this unknown.
2: Ooh, that's <laughs> not for very long. <laughs> I want
0: to give you a comparative, you know, so like an artist like Angel Olson, who's, you know, she's got an international following. He lives locally and she's done some live streams that charged money for. You've got a following. It's not as big as Angel Olson's, but is it feasible for you, practical for you to do solo live streams in which you're charging your audience uh, admission?
2: Well, that's a good idea instead of it making it donation based, you know, that is a good idea kind of make it more like a ticketed event. Those, those kind of things are kind of a catch 22. Sometimes you can get a, a large audience with like a five or $10 ticket, but then also if you keep it donations, you might get a hundred bucks in there or something, you know, I don't know. As far as the hope thing, I'm probably not as optimistic about the future as some other artists. I've been playing music since I was 15 years old live in the bar. That's like 17 years of my life, you know, the, with the whole thing comes totally different coping mechanisms, you know, because like if I had a bad day in the past, I just load up my guitar, go to a jam, see all my friends, you know, and it's like, ah, we got to learn how to sit with ourselves and ask these big questions that are not always easy.
0: Mike Martinez is the frontman and lyricist with the Asheville ska rock band Natural Born Leaders. He sounded a different note, one of hope and opportunity heightened by these times of turmoil.
6: I feel like in this moment, you know, the band is always at the forefront you know I feel like my solo performance is kind of like my uh, pet project that I get to build in the background you know while while we're working on what we're already working on we just got to practice space for the first time in the four years that we've been a band so we got we got tired of getting kicked out of our houses, you know.
0: You you got a practice space during the pandemic.
6: Uh, during the pandemic, <laughs> do
0: you, do you practice. Are you distanced from each other? How do you do that? Yeah,
6: this is a pretty big room, you know. I would say that we we have acted as a pod throughout all this. Uh, we all work together uh, outside of music, so we spend literally every second of every day with each other. You know, we wake up at seven in the morning. Go, you know, work a normal job, and then go play music. Now, this is new, by the way. We this this wasn't pre-pandemic. We didn't work all work together before <laughs> before this. Well, we did, just not doing what we're doing now. We did a few live streams. One uh, with the Orange Peel and the Gray Eagle, and now one of my other side projects actually just played at the gray eagle an outdoor thing and i got to say they're they're crushing through the gray eagle i see a future of like actually being able to do this sustainably
0: you did that one live streaming show through the orange peel and the gray eagle why are you not doing more live streaming shows uh, outdoors the weather's been decent at least up until now why aren't you guys out there doing more live streams? Is there a practical matter behind it? Or is it is it more challenging than you would think? Give me a second. I, I kinda hate
6: it, honestly. Like I just, I can't stand like looking at a computer. I can't like, I feel like I, you know, like what I do is like, you know, I'm like laying my soul out there, you know? And it's hard to do that if I'm staring at a computer screen or there's just a computer screen there, you know? <laughs> it's like, I feel like a lot of musicians in general, like we feed off of the energy of the people that we're playing to. If I'm in a bad mood and we're playing to a group of people, my bad mood isn't the mood. You know what I mean? There's a Hmm. whole, you know, group of other people I could latch on to anybody else's attitude. But if I'm in a bad mood and we're doing a live stream, I'm in a bad mood, doing a live stream (laughs) in a room to myself and, you know, four of my closest friends. If we're like looking for music to return how it was a year ago, anytime soon, I think realistically, that's not gonna happen.
0: How hard is it during this pandemic, despite your new band room, to keep everybody committed to a band when you don't know when your next performance is gonna be?
6: I don't know. I feel like we've just been at it for so long and kind of, honestly, it was a good thing for us at the beginning. At the very least, I feel like we had spent a lot of time like doing the thing and uh, not not letting up at all. And so I think, you know, mentally, I think this has been great for most of our mental health. And also, like, I see these people almost every day of my life. Like, it's not hard for us to want to play together always.
0: If Asheville elected a mayor of the music community, Andrew Fletcher would certainly be on the ballot. He's been a vocal advocate for Asheville buskers, performed as a solo pianist in many of the city's hotels, and been a band leader with his own firecracker jazz band. Yet Fletcher is taking a pragmatic approach to earning a living during the pandemic and redefining what it means to be a career musician.
7: As far as performing goes, I actually, I keep pretty good records. And so I was able to look back and see that in 2019, by this point, year to date, I'd played 153 gigs. And this year I've played 13.
0: I saw you had a Facebook post on that. That was, that's really stark. Obviously that has changed your entire financial picture. How have you managed to still stay in this community doing what you do?
7: So I've had to tool up and skill up. And so I've taught myself a bunch of things and just started employing other things that I always could have done, but I didn't have the time to do. And because, you know, they don't pay as well as playing music, actually. And so, you know, that's why I left them sitting. So I've been doing junk hauling. That's what I've been to the I've been to the dump twice, about twice a week now for weeks. So I've been doing that kind of thing. I've been doing small engine repair. I taught myself carpentry when the stimulus checks were showing up in $600 increments. I bought a bunch of tools that I'd always been meaning to get. So now I can do a lot of mechanical work and carpentry work that I didn't used to be able to do before. And I keep on finding new ways to combine skills that I hadn't figured out how to combine before you know i can think well i can do this for somebody and then they find out that i can do this and it goes on so i i cleaned out an office and then that turned into doing some other work for them and hopefully even more so it's been a lot of changes um and i feel like the music industry has has left me almost like a relationship or something
0: are you psychologically moving away from a career in music
7: well i think i sort of i have to be prepared for it cuz hey you know what if i'm wrong then all it means is that I get to go back to the job I love early while I'm overprepared for the lesser outcome, you know? So I'm just buckled down and I'm expecting that this is going to be a long storm, a long interruption to what I want to do. I have to steel myself for like, for, you know, a long-term outage. It's like the the power is out and I'm going to have enough candles. Wow. Uh, You know, I'd rather have electricity though.
0: We now turn to the world of classical music, which faces challenges heightened by the nature of orchestral performance, the super-spreading potential of choral singing, and an audience filled largely with the elderly. We began this segment by talking with David Whitehill, Executive Director of the Asheville Symphony Orchestra. A lot of people are wondering, what can the Asheville Symphony do, let alone any symphony orchestra in this country under this pandemic? Tell me about what you're talking about, David, with your board, your musicians, with Darko Buteritz, the artistic director. What can we expect, if anything, from the Asheville
8: Symphony in the coming months? Reimagining everything. (laughs) I mean, what an exciting time, right? The silver lining of COVID, Uh, doing all the things that we never thought we would be doing in new and different and exciting ways. I mean... There has never been a time that I've seen such engagement of ideas from musicians, from conductors, from board members, from patrons, from staff. I mean, you know, I, once we got over the initial, forgive me, COVID funk of it and made COVID art, now we're diving in and we're doubling down on staying connected in, in ways that orchestras never thought they would live. I mean, we live in live performance The collective music making and listening is such a special experience. But with the void of that, orchestras are now forced, right? And maybe it's been a long time coming to bridge the digital divide. And and, and that's where we are living right now. We wanna stay connected virtually, which we're doing by uh, owning Tuesday night and having ways that people can engage with us on our ASO at home platform. We're engaging people in person. We're doing live performances with solo, duo, trio, and quartets at people's homes that are hosting us. We're calling it Splendor on Your Grass for very small audiences. So that's, that's a way to stay connected. And, and, and even more importantly, we're launching new educational initiatives. So we're taking our youth orchestra which is almost 200 kids and four ensembles, and we built out a virtual school for them to participate in. And, you know, this is a habit-changing event, and this is our moment to make sure that, as an organization, we are keeping ahead of that change.
0: Just by listening to you right now, you have a certain exuberance that I would think might be a little out of place for these times.
8: Doesn't this change the very nature of your art form? Yeah, you know, I think, but what's important to know is, in being honest, you know, we're not an entertainment company. We're a cultural service organization. So we need to find ways that we can serve our community in this time. And, you know, for example, the pandemic has prompted an exciting reimagining of our music in the school's education program. With local schools going virtual, we realized we would not be able to send our string, woodwind, and brass ensembles into elementary schools. So the ASO pivoted by developing elementary school materials that support current language arts and music curriculum by collaborating with Grammy Award winning kid hop artists, Secret Agent 23 Skidoo, to create new recordings that combine box music with synthesizers, all wrapped up into a hip hop storytelling based on folklore and fairy tales from around the world. And as close as Western North Carolina, home of the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians. So, you know, we're finding ways that we can connect. And new, You know, we're making investments today with the limited funds we have <laughs> that will last the next decade. So it's not, we're, it's not about making COVID art. It's about doing things and taking this period of time, making the most of it and putting that out into our community. And because we can do it virtually, it's not just serving the kids who are in school at assemblies, it's homeschool, right? It's private school, it's the public libraries, it's the charter schools. So the bandwidth of engagement opportunities is huge. Well, I have to
0: ask though, so there are two hurdles I see here and and you can address both. One is the very practical matter of musicians close together performing. How can you do this in a symphonic orchestral form, or how are you reimagining doing so safely? Number one. But number two, when oh, your income is derived, if not from grants and donors and sponsors,
8: from ticket sales, and you don't have ticket sales in this environment. That's the great thing. The depth and breadth of classical music is so great that orchestras were not always 80, you know, 80 to 90 to 100 people. There is fabulous repertoire we don't often get to champion that's written for chamber orchestras. Right now, we've announced a plan to start in February with a four-concert masterwork series. We announced in April. We were, we were the first orchestra in the country to say we're starting in February. And right now, we're sticking to it. But internally, we have a number of scenarios. So it could be smaller venues. We could have an orchestra that's more socially distanced. For our audience, we could have in-person and virtual options. Programs could be shorter with no intermission. So there are ways to do this, and we're looking at all of that right now.
0: Jason Posnock is the concertmaster with the Asheville Symphony and artistic director of the Brevard Music Center's esteemed Summer Institute and Concert Series. We brought him into the conversation for his vantage as both a performer and
3: programmer. As a violinist... It has been uh, a bit of a desert period for me, I'll be honest. The last orchestra concert, when was that, David? Was it February or March did we play? I can't remember.
8: Yeah, we didn't quite make it to Masterworks 5. So it was
3: February, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the last orchestra concert that I've been part of. And, you know, since then, there have been a couple of projects with the Asheville Symphony, a couple of small things like the trio that, that I shared with you. Which was actually part of a Brevard Music Center fundraiser. But the things that I rely on to keep me motivated and to keep me going, like Asheville Symphony concerts and the Brevard Music Center season, which I mean, I'm playing all the time, I'm playing every day during the summer, that just wasn't there. So, in terms of Brevard, we are right now in our planning process. We've been in meetings with our senior staff, with the board and we are preparing a 2021 season. I want to pause you for a second because I want to just orient the audience. So (laughs) Brevard Music Center gears
0: entirely for a summer season, both in terms of concerts and its school, where they draw students from all over the country and internationally. Both of those did not happen this summer.
3: That cancellation is, I mean, as we've all experienced our own versions of cancellations was incredibly difficult. And our goal over the summer was to stay in touch with our students, to stay in touch with our patrons. David knows exactly what I'm about to say here. We became kind of a media company for a few months. And, you know, now we are looking to, well, we've learned a lot from that. And I I hope we can go back to what we really want to be doing, which is live education, live performance. Our performances are the outgrowth of the education, Matt. So our entire summer concert series, that's really a curriculum for hundreds of the best students from around the world. We hope we can have them back this summer. We're certainly planning on it. You know, we believe we can have students safely. We have the added challenge of housing them. So it's not just putting on a safe concert, which is going on all over the country, all over the world, as we know, but even in this country. David, can you speak to that a little bit? Is there are there some details you've heard of from orchestras
0: around the country that you think might be adoptable by Asheville Symphony?
8: Yeah, you know, I think that one of the more interesting ones, and I know we have Kate on here as well, who plays the flute, is that you know, orchestra musicians are adapting by creating masks for their instruments, uniquely for their instruments. And it's, it, that has been really interesting that orchestras have had to employ uh, seamstresses, right? Someone to come in and, and custom make. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, what we all understand is that the science behind this and the contagions of contagiousness of this disease is so great that even with best efforts of protocols, it's really not good enough. Just this past weekend, I heard of an orchestra who had a musician pass away even though they had every protocol you could possibly have in place, and another musician in that same orchestra. You know, there's other orchestra staffs who are working remotely who have had a coronavirus spread within their own office, even though they're working remotely with a rotated schedule of coming into the office. So this is one of those times that I think we're all challenged, where our head and our heart of what we want to do, our instincts aren't aligning up. Flutist Kate
0: Steinbeck now joins the conversation. She is an Asheville performer, teacher, and founder of the concert producer Panharmonia. Kate, you were just mentioned, I wonder, do you have a mask made for flute playing?
5: Broadway project. They have singer masks. I'm sure Millie knows about these. And this is the flute mask looks like a platypus. The flute comes through here, the head joint. And yeah.
0: How is it to perform with that?
5: I don't know. (laughs) I've done a couple of unmasked things. I'm thinking mostly for teaching, actually, this when we have to go inside. I guess I'm breathing my own carbon dioxide when I'm doing this. So I did one rehearsal like this. It was interesting. I definitely think outside is the way to go um, moving forward for what I do, small groups. And I didn't really think about doing much until we were in a certain phase, you know. Because I feel very protective of my audience; they're not going to come to certain places unless they feel absolutely sure and comfortable. And so I did um, very limited—twenty-five people. I have a bunch of folding chairs that Panharmonia owns, and I actually put them seven or eight feet apart in my lawn. I'm very organized, and I measured everything and and told them they have to reserve in advance and it sold out really fast because people are so into life and they're missing it and they're craving it. The art museum invited me to do something in September and my pianist was masked and I was far from him. Again, I just, as far as our audience is going, a lot of them are in a vulnerable age range and if they're not going to come out, there's not a lot of sense in trying to make something happen live.
0: Melody Galloway is the founding director of the Asheville Choral Society and a professor of choral studies at UNC Asheville. Choral singing is considered a potential super-spreading activity as far as airborne viruses are concerned, but Galloway sounds both grounded yet hopeful about the moves she and the society have been making during the pandemic.
9: Who knew that singing would be about the most dangerous thing you could do? I mean, whoever imagined that? That first choir back in uh, late February outside Seattle that so many people got sick. They had a two and a half hour rehearsal. And then they unfortunately had even a a couple of singers pass away because of COVID. Yeah, it was about two thirds of the choir that came down with coronavirus. Yeah, the Skagit Skagit Valley. Valley. Yeah. And so that was kind of a bellwether, I guess. It sort of propelled this study that has been a first and second iteration, both in July and September, out of the University of Colorado Boulder, about uh, aerosol research with singers, with actors, and also with wind instruments. And like my other colleagues have mentioned, the the you know the gloves and the masks that are being created, people are being incredibly innovative. And for us with the Choral Society, we really thought about how we could do something to keep going. We sent out a survey. Way back in the summer, and the overwhelming answer was we don't know how, and we don't know uh, what it would look like, but we want to do something rather than nothing. And we are artists, we are going to do our art. We have to do, we have to perform, we have to create and engage with our art forms, and especially in the, the choral world and for vocalists. So I crafted and offered to do an eight-week virtual season. With the Astral Coral Society, and this is a two-part thing. Every week, I have a pre-recorded video that has several different sections to it that goes out to our membership and uh, beyond for people who sign up to do this. And the other part is our—we do a Monday night live instead of a Saturday night live. So we've, you know, made it as engaging as possible. But our live session has really surprised me and. We were hoping at the beginning, and the budget was showing us, that if we had 40 of our 100-plus members sign up, then we could make the budget and, and maybe pay staff at you know 75%. We had 90 people sign up. We have people from all over the country who are Zooming in with us. It's really been unbelievable. There's no synchronous singing. Zoom kind of goes crazy if you try to all unmute and sing together or play together. And my colleagues can, we all know about this. And eventually somebody's going to, some really creative person is going to invent a way for us to play and sing together without this time lag. But anyway, what I am silently, I am the only person I can hear. And yet I'm seeing this zoom of 80 some people on the screen, in all their squares, standing, breathing, doing all the technique. And it's just to see their faces and they see one another. You know, it's an audition chorus, but our skill levels are, uh, you know, across the board. And also to see people who left maybe three years ago that now live in another city are with us on Monday nights. We're now proposing another series, but it'll be different. We're going to lighten up a little bit. And historically, the Asheville Choral Society has had a Pops concert for our final concert in the spring. And so we're making this a a Pops spring. But for this fall, the other thing we're doing is a virtual Recording project, I've written an original piece entitled Gloria for Chamber Orchestra and SATB Chorus, and the intent behind it was, and my thought behind it, was celebrating the ways we can be together and support each other even in this time.
0: Before we move on, here is a brief performance of Beethoven's Serenade for Flute, Violin, and Viola performed during the pandemic with social distancing between violinist Jason Posnack, his wife and flutist Dilshot Posnack, and Jenny Snyder-Koseros on the viola. This happened inside Parker Concert Hall on the campus of the Brevard Music Center. was a socially distanced performance of Beethoven's Serenade for Flute, Violin, and Viola performed by Jason Posnack, Dilshad Posnack, and Jenny snyder Kosarose this August inside Parker Concert Hall on the campus of the Brevard Music Center. I'm Matt Pikin, the arts producer with Blue Ridge Public Radio, and this is BPR News Presents Curtain Call, the future of local live performance. We've heard how local musicians are meeting the challenges of the pandemic. Let's talk now with several people who manage local venues, large and small, about how they're adapting to these times. I want to start with the big kahuna in our community. Chris Correll is the general manager of Thomas Wolfe Auditorium and Harris Cherokee Center. Obviously, big venues like that have not been able to have anything really right now. So Chris, give us a sense of what you're talking about internally with people on staff, what you're talking about with booking agents. What are you looking at for both Thomas Wolfe and at Harrah's? I guess I'd say, first of all, what
10: we're looking at is like a year plus from now for all things related to this conversation. Uh, We've essentially completely shifted our model Other than working with David and the Nashville Symphony, sports, 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 because we can still make money via TV rights and advertising by hosting sports with no fans. So whenever it comes to the touring acts, whether it's dance events or touring concerts, at this point, everyone has shifted to fall of twenty one. And that's the best case. And all of those groups also have holds in spring of 22 and summer of 22. So we're, we're in a really delayed timeframe at the moment.
0: So let's say we that, that timeline plays out, that you're looking at the fall of 2021. That'll be basically a year and a half without anything. What has happened in terms of just a functionality when you're dark like that? What's What kind of staff are you having and how are you keeping forward movement during these times when we're looking at at least another year until you're back performing?
10: So we've managed not to lay anybody off. We have about 24 full-time positions and lucky for us, we're we're government-owned. We're city-owned and operated. And a week into all of the shutdowns, we basically spent a week canceling all of our events. And then I jumped in with their emergency operations center with Buncombe County. And we very quickly started reassigning our staffs, staff to any type of response to the pandemic. So we opened up a homeless shelter. We started handling some testing on site and off site. We're still doing data entry for testing. We're doing scheduling for community testing at this point. We're running the COVID-19 hotline call center for Buncombe County. So that's all of our arena staff right now. And in conjunction with that, we had some capital projects that were slated to start next year that we sped the timeline up to keep our maintenance crew and our trades worker crews working at the building Now they're doing a lot of those capital projects in-house instead of us farming them out to a contractor. So we've been able to keep busy. And luckily, our rainy day fund will get us through until about September of next year. If it goes much longer, we're going to be in a trouble spot.
0: You mentioned sports being the one thing that you can move forward with because you can do that without a live audience. Why don't you have a different musical or performance artists in some of your venues where you were also filming that for an audience or live streaming that for an audience? Why are the arts not practical from a standpoint of doing that in the way that sports are?
10: Well, for our room specifically, we don't have the built-in infrastructure. I'm sure Jeff could probably talk about it a lot. Like the Peel has been doing that and I feel like successfully from what I've seen. But for us, we don't have the video infrastructure. Selling commercials for a live stream show is just not the same as selling it for Uh, college basketball team on ESPN3, the value is so much higher because there's less of it and there's those rabid fans of that individual school. And it's just a lot harder to sell that for a live stream. Plus the major, major acts are pretty much doing it in their hometowns or whatever town they live in. So unless they're a large touring group that makes sense for a Thomas Wolfe or an arena size production that lives here, it's not going to make sense to bring them here to do it.
0: You just pointed out something that really kind of shows the challenges that Asheville's facing for your venues because we're not Nashville where there's a plethora of artists or Atlanta and these other cities so we've got you've got two of the biggest venues in this town and yet from an art standpoint you don't have anybody of a large enough stature to command the kind of audience that would make it sensible to use your venues for a live stream event is that correct yes.
10: Not with the expenses that come with putting it on in our room. If we had the built-in video cameras and this, that, and the other thing that a typical performing arts center has, we could probably make that work, especially with a chamber-sized orchestra for the National Symphony or even the Steep Canyon Rangers. But there's just a little bit of extra expense in our room to make those live streaming things happen. It just makes it unfeasible.
0: We're talking. I guess the the one of the big overarching words in this whole conversation is adaptability. And I'm wondering, you know, because you're such a large entity, what are you talking about in terms of what's possible to adapt your, if not, you know, Harris Cherokee Center, bringing in, curtaining and changing seating. What is practical in terms of adapting, and what isn't? Uh,
10: so practical. As long as it doesn't cost so much that it puts us in such a deep hole and then it's something that's going to exist for six months, right? Like if we plexiglass everything we possibly could, like at Lowe's Home Improvement, we're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in plexiglass and still only have four or five events because no one's touring. So we're trying to manage it based on a non-fan environment. So for example, I put a bid in on the American Cornhole Championships last week because we can do that in a pandemic somehow. Like so, it's we're adapting to finding the events that can fit in the room with less fans that we can still put on
0: TV. First of all, I didn't know there were the American Cornhole <laughs> Championships, and I hope you get that. That would be a big scoop if you guys planned <laughs> that. Uh, so, does the fate of of Thomas Wolf and and Harris Cherokee uh, Center? really depend on landing the American Cornhole Championships and other like-minded events that you would not have thought about before to tide you over until next fall, presuming we're able to resume a regular performance schedule at that point.
10: Yeah, events like that are what's going to get us through. If events don't start back for us next fall and it goes till 2022, those events are going to help fill in the rainy day fund for then. And the Maui Invitational Basketball Tournament that we got from Hawaii that we brought here to do a no fans event has really opened the doors for us. We have a lot of other college basketball bubbles that were just like this close to nailing down that hopefully will just be a big, non-fanned college basketball room for the next few months.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for for laying all that out for us, Chris. I want to talk now with Ray Jeffrey, is the director of the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. And the Wortham is a pretty large venue too. And what's unique about the Wortham now starting this past year, there are also two studio sort of spaces that are very flexible, designed for local rehearsals and performance. So there's essentially three venues within the Wortham. Let's talk with Ray about what's been happening there. I know from everything I've heard, you've been doing outdoor shows, or at least you were doing some things outdoors. How has your strategy evolved in the course of the pandemic to where we are now? We
11: immediately tried to imagine what we could do with all of these restrictions. And we did start doing some outdoor concerts pretty immediately in our back courtyard um, as well as in parking lots. Now, we don't have our own outdoor parking lot space. So we have a very two very small courtyards and a parking deck, which is not owned by us next to us. So we rented that parking deck and we did a partnership with Asheville Outlet Mall and did a series of drive and dance performances over at the Asheville Outlet Mall.
0: Talk about how you measure success with this new paradigm, with those initiatives. What worked, what didn't, and how are you shifting going forward?
11: So there's different kinds of success, right? And even when we didn't have COVID, um, if we had a great show but it didn't sell too well, we always said, wow, that was a great artistic success. Because that's true, right? There, There are great artistic successes and there are things that make you money that you need to survive. So it depends on which tool of measurement you're using. Right now, our goal is just to maintain our relationships with the community, with the people that use our venue, with the artists, and to b- continue to offer that art because we are a nonprofit organization and we still have a mission to provide art, to connect artists and community despite the pandemic.
0: So how do you do that now? You know, I mean, there, you do it through performance, you do it through just your availability to the artist community and being open to what their needs are. How do you do continue that mission when everything is so uncertain, even in terms of what you can do in terms of health restrictions? How do you maintain that? That's a daily question. How have you been answering it every day?
11: Every day is different. So like like all of our colleagues we are, we're doing virtual performances. We are doing um, performances in person as we were just talking about. Just today, we opened up an exhibit with Ola Community Arts in our lobby because we can have people in our lobby. Even though we can't have a lot of people in our theater, Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense for us right now. We can have them in the lobby. We've been opening up the venues at very little, uh, if any, rental rates for people to do live stream performances. We don't own our own equipment, but to bring companies in and allow them to use it. Blue Ridge Orchestra has been doing rehearsals there.
0: You talked about the performances you've had in terms of rooftop performances, some in the courtyard, you did some of the Asheville outlets. Is that something that you can continue doing? I mean, not notwithstanding winter, but let's say spring rolls around, weather is getting a little better and we're no further out of this pandemic in the spring than we are now. Under that paradigm, where is the Wortham?
11: We're still doing this every day, reimagining every day how we can connect our artists and community. But those kinds of
0: performances, were they, you said there's a lot of ways to define success. Were there glimmers of light that came out of that? I know like the rooftop performances, I think the limit on, on attendance was what, 35 people, I think?
11: We could have 25 in person and then unlimited
0: in cars. Okay. So is that something like, oh, we can bring in... A modicum of income to justify the costs of the of that? Or is that not part of the equation?
11: They, I think a uh, success for us would be a break-even in those events with the current capacity limits.
0: Can the Wortham maintain itself financially under this paradigm going into next spring without anything really changing functionally on what you're able to produce in your in your internal spaces?
11: We were really fortunate to be in a great place before COVID hit. We had a a huge string of successful years, and we have a great uh, population of friends and donors who have been supporting the organization. We feel very fortunate that, along with some budget cuts, will get us through.
0: Does this present even more, if not opportunity, but more of an impetus in a sense, like since we're not so anchored to the center, we can really go out to other communities and go where they are. Is there any of those talks
11: happening right now? Sure. So one of the great things that we did, which, you know, seemed natural right after the all the protests downtown, our organization made a pretty strong Black Lives Matter statement um, to our population. And, We came back together as an organization and said, you know what, we need to support that. We can't just say it. We have to support it. And we did have Different Strokes Performing Arts Collective in-house then. Uh, They were paying a reduced rent, and we made a pledge to them to not charge them for space moving forward. And we are also looking at an initiative to do the same with other, other companies who have leaders of color.
0: I want to leave you with this question, you know, how are the changes that you're making now, once we're out of this pandemic, or at least having some semblance of a return to normalcy, what are some of the things you're doing now that you expect to keep doing that if not for COVID, you would not have done? What do you think will become part of the regular way of business for the Wortham going forward once we're out of the pandemic?
11: Well, we've really had a always had a strong connection to local groups because of the forty different groups and more that we serve every year through the venue. But now we've been able to go back and really talk to local artists again, which, you know, we present nationally touring companies, as you know. So, having the opportunity to go back and present local artists, we'll be doing that more and more over this next year as we get out of COVID and really get back into conversation with local artists and other local organizations. I think that's been great for everybody in this call. We've we've talked to each other more this year than I feel like we've talked to each other in the twenty years that I've lived and worked here, and that's a great boon. And I think that's going to go forward. Uh, with a sense of community that we didn't have before
0: awesome thank you so much ray for taking thank you i really appreciate it i want to turn now to jeff santiago with the orange peel and the new venue in town rabbit rabbit jeff you've got your hands full let's first go to the orange peel i know you were trying different live stream events and other things what are you doing now with the orange peel what's happening there
12: right now it's we've kind of slowed down in that process of live streaming I believe it was kate maybe he mentioned that earlier where you know i think there's some streaming fatigue going on so where people were really excited about hopping on to support artists on the regular it slowed down a bit so it kind of forced us to kind of slow things down a bit where that was concerned the way we were able to really make that happen was with help with IMAVL. so they're the ones that had the cameras that came in here and the partnership we were able to um, present those now for us. It, it, we had a shared mission in, in making sure we could uh, give a platform to the local m- musicians here that they you know normally gig uh, on a regular basis, and to give them uh, a, a platform to be seen and heard, but uh, to hopefully make some some money as well. So.
0: Well, talk about, I would think the orange peel, given its wide open nature, we can perform maybe in the round, maybe not on the stage or, you know, there's probably lots of things you could be doing. Have you had those kinds of conversations and is it even financially viable to do that, even if you were to fill up your room to the capacity you're allowed is that right. vi- viable for a venue such as yours?
12: Basically, no, uh, in short answer. But, you know, we've talked about a few things where we'd like to present smaller shows and have multiple shows in a day where we can possibly rotate an audience through after, you know, sanitizing the room, giving it enough time. However, um, basically where we're at right now in our category for a venue, we're shuttered. So, and we've been shuttered since the uh, the thirteenth of March. So, other than doing the live streaming, we can't really have any public inside the building. And so all your we focus run,
0: right now has been with Rabbit Rabbit,
12: right? And and that has been the case as well. So, it's a mixed mixed blessing. We have something to focus on. It's outdoors. Um, it gives us that opportunity to connect with the with the community. It's a lot to open a brand new business. So, it's consuming in and of itself. But what what's hard about it is is coming up with inventive ideas to find ways to um, activate the orange peel.
0: I want to orient audiences just briefly about Rabbit Rabbit. In case you don't know about it, it's an outdoor venue. It's a repurposed parking lot, a bank parking lot, that now has a large concrete. uh, It's 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 what was already there. They've just repainted it uh, to do live concerts and movies on one end of the venue and then basically on top of the bank structure is now a rooftop performance venue where they've been having stand-up comedy how has rabbit rabbit been a lifeline for the orange peel given that the orange peel which is your bread and butter has been
12: dark uh, well, it's given us work for those of us who, who work for the company. One silver lining is that I think we would have been overwhelmed if we were trying to run both at the same time. So we're trying to take that to heart where we have this opportunity to opportunity to really focus on uh, what we hope to achieve at Rabbit Rabbit. It is a great venue for the times right now. Obviously, we're only working at 5% capacity of what that venue can do. We did cancel a number of uh, national shows already that would have happened this summer and this fall. So right now, the only show, national show we have in the books is a year from tonight at Rabbit Rabbit.
0: How long can this pandemic continue in this way before the orange peel has to go dark permanently?
12: Well, you know, we're lucky enough to have been a successful venue for, for some time now. We should be okay through the spring, but springtime is is, is about the time where we really need to like make some, some hard decisions.
0: Okay. So if right. we're where we are right now, come next March, April, you're thinking the entire dynamic could shift for you.
12: It could shift for us. You know, I've I've spoken to some some counterpart venue managers and owners ac- across the country and we're in a better position compared to some of them. We feel fortunate for that. Some of them are talking about mortgaging homes and all that kind of stuff when you when you're talking about the independent venue situation. So, you know, we've been part of the Neva Uh, campaign, which is the National Independent Venue Association. It's called Save Our Stages. Right. Save Our Stages is is the act that's on the table. Um, They're trying to put that in the HEROES Act as well to see if we can push through for government aid for our particular independent venues. So uh, it's another waiting game for us. But independently, NEVA just had a virtual festival this past weekend, and they on their own raised about a million and a half um, for the cause. Um, Obviously that's not going to do it for everybody. So we are hoping for some uh, federal aid as well.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Jeff. I want to turn to Russell Keith. The Gray Eagle in some ways has become the Maggie Valley Fairgrounds Club. I have to admit, I'm happily surprised at how you've shifted to doing concerts there. Talk about early on, I know you were really kind of scrambling. You were doing some live streaming shows from within the Gray Eagle initially, and then you've done a few outdoor patio shows, and then Maggie Valley opened up. So talk about your evolution of thinking to where you are
13: now. We have a Taqueria, a Gray Eagle Taqueria that's inside the Gray Eagle that's been here for several years it opened up, and we opened up one in Maggie Valley with a local brewery there. And it opened up an opportunity for us that we found a location that would be suitable for a drive-in concert that was starting to be like the new wave of concerts that could be safely done and reaching out to the local town of Maggie Valley to engage interest at something that they had been missing there for so long uh, was bluegrass music, Americana music, it just kind of matched up with uh, what they were looking for, as far as bringing back something that we used to uh, they used to have and uh, something that we could provide for them. We've been very fortunate um, to put in a, a very socially distanced production that we have been told is the gold standard of driving concerts.
0: Wow! How many shows have you done like that now, and t- what has the attendance been
13: like? We have done now three. You know, we've had one sellout, and our capacity is 250 cars. The other two have been about just a you know a little less than that, but gets overall still a good turnout.
0: We're going to be uh, entering a, a season where I imagine those kinds of concerts will slow down now. And you mentioned that these concerts have been primarily for an older audience, whereas I know the Grey Eagle, uh, you know, has done shows of all kinds from metal, alternative. Can you or you are you talking about doing? A broader range of music at maggie valley come the spring you know assuming the gray eagle is not allowed to reopen in any feasible way
13: yeah i mean obviously we want to stick to our guns to what we've uh, what's made us so successful here at the gray eagle and and that's being you know having every genre represented here um it may not match up to a like the type of stage that is out there and the setting for cer- certain things and i know, and i know Asheville Music Hall has taken on a different genres and has produced some, uh, also some shows out in Haywood County. It's more about the match, the location of the um, of our space, more set up for acoustic kind of and um, mm. not so much of a uh, metal or anything like that.
0: Does Asheville have an outdoor area venue that to your knowledge is capable of having similar kinds of concerts?
13: We've looked at that. Yeah, you know, one thing that pops in my mind would be the uh, ag center, mm. um, but you know the top. I haven't been out there really to just, just look at the topography of the setup about it visually to see if your sight lines would work. But we've had some fo- folks approach us, but you know it really comes down to how many cars that we can get into a place to make it successful. That's been a challenging part of this. Again, it's just us just keeping the music alive. It's not uh, a great you know, financial reward for us, but yeah, it's been very you know, helpful for us. It's made me feel more inspired, more into my passion of music, is to doing these new things. It's exciting, it's scary, it's fun, and we're continuing to learn from it. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's good and good. Come next
0: March and April, if we're not in any looser restrictions, where is the Gray Eagle come next spring?
13: We can make it to the spring use you know, notion of saying, you know, maybe fall of next year, that'll be challenging.
0: You've just listened to BPR News Presents Curtain Call, the future of local live performance. This conversation was edited from an October 21st Facebook Live event that ran nearly two hours. You can find that entire conversation in the video section of Blue Ridge Public Radio's Facebook page. I'm Matt Pykin, the arts producer with BPR.
4: Thank you for listening.